And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, September 14th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors are Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, contractors worry first about getting the contract, and second, can they fulfill it? Plus, a look inside one agency's unique procurement shop, so far, no far. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, Veterans Affairs officials say their pause on that new electronic health record will probably continue for much of next year. And that's frustrating to members of Congress who say the VA has just too little to show for the project, five years and billions of dollars into it. But VA officials say future EHR rollouts will go a lot more smoothly eventually once it works out all of the bugs. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has the latest. This thing's been on pause more than they've had rollouts. And they're talking about now into calendar next year. Yeah, there have been a number of pauses in the rollout of this new Oracle Cerner electronic health record. It's gone through all sorts of problems. It's run into all sorts of issues. But what we've heard from VA officials, they told members of the House Appropriations Committee that summer of 2024 is when we might see these go-lives to go forward. This has been a reset that has been in place since April of this year so that they can untangle some of the problems with this Oracle Cerner EHR system. They are trying to deal with VA employees who are giving this low usability scores. They are dealing with outages that have completely shut down the EHR and degradations that have really slowed it down. And so we heard from Neil Evans, who is the acting program executive director of the EHR Modernization Integration Office. He says summer 24 is a rough estimate, but there's even then not a clear timeline of what would go forward next. We are making progress, and yet there's still more work to be done before we'll be ready to publish a new schedule and proceed with deployments across the rest of the VA healthcare system. Well, that's not saying too much, except that they're way behind and are continuing to be behind. How far behind, actually, from the original schedule is this? For some context here, the Oracle Cerner EHR is currently running at five small and medium-sized VA medical facilities. Full deployment would bring this to 170 VA sites. And given the schedule that had been in place before all these resets and all these pauses, it should currently be going on at 70 sites across the VA network. So it's only at a fraction of where it really should be in place at this point. And at those places, they're still having problems, right? They were having clinical issues. They were having integration issues. And also user experience was kind of negative because people had get stuck trying to do the functions that was presented to them. That's actually the key criteria of what would allow this project to move forward is that those usability scores at the sites already using the new EHR have to improve before they decide to keep this project going forward. And meanwhile, their legacy system, Vista, which has been running for 40 years now, what's the status of that? They've got to keep that running, too, in, in the meantime. They have to keep it running longer than they initially expected. Vista has at least another five or 10 years in its lifespan, given the delays that we've seen with the Oracle Cerner EHR system. It's in a lot of ways the polar opposite. It's a legacy system. It's been around for about 40 years at some sites. It's popular with VA clinicians who use it. 
there's a high degree of customizability to that system, given whatever site it's in place at. And they've had to modernize it beyond its useful life here. Evan says that despite all of these things, Vista won't be able to support the VA's long-term healthcare needs and that the Oracle Cerner EHR is the way to go. We don't want to stay in reset forever. In fact, I would argue that we're at higher risk the longer we maintain a healthcare system that's running two different electronic health record systems. And no thought of dropping the Cerner Oracle and just updating Vista. No, at this point, they say that the Oracle Cerner system is the way they need to go. They see that customizability Vista as a negative. They say that there should be a consistent process across the entire VA system. All right. They're going ahead with this Cerner product acquired by Oracle until the spring of 24 is when they're saying, or middle of 24, is that how long it's going to take to get it to work? How will they know when it's working properly and they can go ahead and deploy it? One key thing to look forward to here is in March of next year. That is when the EHR will go live at a joint VA DOD healthcare facility. This is something that is unique to the EHR go live. This is something that has been more successful on the DOD side of things. They are rolling out the same EHR as VA. And so if this goes successfully, VA officials say that this is a sign that the Oracle Cerner system can go live at large complex facilities. It's only been at the small and medium ones so far. And one other thing here is that Oracle is taking an active role in making sure that it's addressing all of the bugs that it's supposed to. Mike Cecilia, the executive vice president of Oracle Global Industries, says that once all those bugs are addressed, that EHR go lives can happen at a much faster pace. Once we begin deploying again, we should be able to speed deployments. As I've said, to do so will require achieving a repeatable model during the reset. Not only will this minimize costs and allow more predictable, timely deployments, but it will also allow VA to achieve a consistent provider and veteran experience and quality of care across its system. Yeah, and they've been saying that for five years now. So how much more money is VA asking for at this point? For fiscal 2024, spending that lawmakers are trying to hash out now, the VA is asking for nearly $1.9 billion for this EHR. Lawmakers were scratching their heads a bit about why they're asking for so much given this reset that's going to be going on for quite some time. VA officials said that they do need a long runway. There's a lot of prep work that needs to happen before they even begin to get these go lives going again. But that is a hard thing for some lawmakers to accept. One of the members of the Appropriations Committee, Congressman Tony Gonzalez, himself a veteran, said that this is too little to show for this much spending. And he did say that lawmakers are considering cutting the HR funding given the performance. There absolutely needs to be an urgency in fixing this issue. What if we cut funding? Would that light a fire? What if uh, next year was uh, zero? Would that light a fire? Or put out a fire. Yeah, that's pretty tough language there. So what else do we need to look forward to here, Jory? Well, one thing that has changed recently is that the VA has renewed its contract with Oracle Cerner for this EHR system. They had the first five years behind them. They now have this new contract in place for another five years. But as opposed to a block five-year contract, this is going to be something that they will go back to the negotiating table on every year uh, going forward. And so they'll be able to re- renegotiate uh different terms every year. They've already put in higher financial penalties for Oracle Cerner if these outages and these degradations continue to happen. Yeah, you really wonder because this was a commercial product that was going to simply be adapted to VA and it sounded simple because it was a 
product that's deployed in millions of other workstations at hospitals, you know, in the commercial sector. So interesting that it's been so tough to deploy in VA. We don't know too much about the details of the problems, though, do we? That's the thing that is the big question behind this is that DOD has been rolling out this system much faster and much more easily than the VA has been able to. Uh, They had some initial hiccups, but they are just having a better go at this. And also the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is also going to be a party to this EHR. What VA officials are saying is that this is not just a VA EHR. This is a federal EHR that a lot of agencies are joining on to. So VA is unique in its problems in this go live. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a look inside one agency's unique procurement shop. So far, no far. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Imagine a federal procurement shop where you use every technique except the federal acquisition regulation. And you don't do grants either. And you've got congressional backing for your novel approach. That's the case for one of the government's newer agencies, the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, known as ARPA-H. Joining me with a look from the inside, the ARPA-H Director of Acquisition and Contracts, Diane Sidebottom. Ms. Sidebottom, good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. And I want to start with you because you came here already with a background in, let's say, non-traditional or non-ordinary types of procurements, specifically DARPA, after which all the other ARPAs to some degree are modeled. So tell us what you've brought here. Yes, I've had an unusual career in many ways. I actually started out as a lawyer in the government, not a contracts person, but have been involved with contracts for over 30 years now. But when I joined DARPA originally back in 1994 was right when other transactions and some of the more innovative tools were really starting to make their way into the Department of Defense. So I was raised basically outside of the FAR in many ways and using these various tools for a variety of different research and development projects. And over my career have been involved ever since in making sure those tools remain active and available to us, but also are used properly. And I've gone to a variety of different agencies. I joined the Homeland Security ARPA when Homeland Security was first created and was able to forward the idea of other transactions through my work as a professor at DAU for a time. So that's really been something that is close to my heart, is making sure that we have these tools available to us. As the world evolves, we need to have different options. All right. Let's talk about ARPA-H then specifically. You acquire lots of things. Tell us the basic ways you do that. It's not completely OTA either, though, is it? It is not. It is not. And we do still use procurement contracts on occasion. We're just not going to use them much for research and development. We do have infrastructure acquisitions that we still have to do. But one of the things that we've noticed with the R&D community over time is that it's really changed in how the players are getting involved in R&D, where, you know, if you think back 50, 60 years ago, it was largely universities. That has changed since the late 80s, early 90s, and is now 
more focused in many ways on companies and commercial entities doing R&D. When it was just universities, grants were great. Grants were created basically to work with universities to give them the money they needed to go out and do that good work that they were doing. But when you're working with other organizations, grants are not necessarily the best tool. So one of the things we wanted to make sure for ARPA-H was that we had a variety of tools available to us, whether it's cooperative agreements, other transactions, we're going to do prize and challenge competitions as a way to draw an interest to these various areas that we're trying to focus on. And then there may be other tools that we create as we go along and as we see the need. So we're certainly not foreclosing that innovation in the contracting world going forward. So to acquire research and development from the corporate world or the startup world, the non dot edu world let's put it that Mm -hmm. way then that is principally with ota probably will be that's going to be our focus initially until we see that we need other tools potentially going down the pipe but so far in all my time at darpa and some of these other organizations ot's have really been a very useful tool for dealing with companies especially companies that are not used to dealing with the government and don't have necessarily the framework or the internal structure that would allow them to easily work under the FAR. And OTs give us that flexibility to negotiate, and that has really proven to be valuable to us. And a detail when using OTAs, because under the Labor Department, OFCCP, they enforce a lot of the reporting and compliance requirements of contractors on things like their diversity and equity, their salary systems, whether they use a coal furnace, you know, in the basement of their building and so on. Does that also apply under OTA for these innovative companies? And if so, facing that, why would anyone want money from the government one way or the other? What OTs allow is they're released from a lot of the acquisition statutes and regulations. That doesn't mean there aren't other statutes and regulations that still apply. And a lot of the things that you're speaking of are requirements and regulations and statutes that apply to companies because they do business in the United States. It's not unique to federal contracting. And so OTs will still have those as requirements. But if you looked at a a standard OT, it wouldn't really mention much of that because we assume the companies already know what they need to do in order to fulfill those statutory requirements for doing business here in the U.S. We're speaking with Diane Sidebottom. She is Director of the Office of Acquisition and Contracts at the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, ARPA-H. And maybe give us a couple of examples of the types of acquisition of non-infrastructure stuff like bookcases behind you and, you know, maybe a computer for the office, but these types of uh, innovative services or research and development items. Sure, absolutely. So we have a variety of program managers that are going to be working with us, and we're recruiting even more. And our program managers bring to us their good ideas for new programs. And so when looking at these programs, that's what's going to guide us as to what vehicle is going to seem to be the best option. And what I'll also look at is the teams, performer teams that apply as to what makes the most sense for their particular setup. We are still in our infancy in many ways. We're still bringing on program managers. We have put out a few solicitations so far. One was an open BAA, uh, and a BAA is a broad agency announcement that allows us to award potentially a variety of award vehicles depending on the performer. And we are funding several different programs under that particular open office BAA. And it's open in that it's not specifically targeted at any particular technology area, but is targeted at the overall mission space of ARPA-H. 
We also have put out a couple of program-specific BAAs or solicitations. One is for a program called Nitro. Nitro is targeting osteoarthritis and coming up with new and innovative ways to deal with that. And because of that, we're going to see a variety of different performers, both academia for the more early stage research, but also companies who are interested in this. And so that will drive a bit who who gets what vehicle, depending on what their focus is. We also have another solicitation out on the tree called PSI, P-S-I, that is focused on cancer research, but focused specifically on targeting technologies that can help us find clean margins for cancer while people are being operated on so they don't have to go back into the operating room. And so these are just a couple of examples of the kind of programs that we're doing. But as new program managers come on and we are hiring program managers every month to uh, bring to our stable of good innovators, they'll bring new and different ideas and we'll come up with new and in different ways to both solicit. So we're not wedded to BAs necessarily, but we're going to come up with some of our own solutions as well as make awards. And earlier we talked about other transaction authorities or OTs, OTAs, but you also have cooperative agreements, intermediary agreements, partnerships. Maybe describe those a little bit for us. So we're not going to do grants very often, not because grants are a bad thing, but because we want to have more interaction with the performers or the recipients than a normal grant would allow. And that's really the difference between grants and cooperative agreements. Functionally, they look very similar. It's just that with a cooperative agreement, we get to have a lot more day-to-day interaction with those performers or the recipients. And so our program managers like to have that kind of involvement. We want to have a more collaborative kind of space when we deal with our teams. And so that's why we're going to focus more on the cooperative agreement side. We also have partnership intermediary agreement authority that allows us to reach out to nonprofits who can help us get more access to communities and also help us transition some of the technologies that we might develop out into the private sector. That's what PIAs are really for, is to be that facilitator, that intermediary that helps the government find some of these resources and allows us to find unique groups that we might not ordinarily draw into government contracting, like small businesses and maybe startups. We also want to focus on some of the more unique groups like HBCUs and minority institutions that oftentimes are not real large participants in this space. And so the PIAs will help with that. We have two PIAs that we have signed with two nonprofits and plan to do two more. And then we also will have some prizes and challenges that we'll put out that will be sort of pie in the sky in many ways, challenges out to the community. And hopefully we'll get some people who are interested in that who will then come in and compete for that prize, following along with the legacy of several different agencies who have taken up their prize mantle and do quite a lot of those. So we want to try to use a variety of different methodologies that would appeal to a variety of different groups throughout the market space. Prize mechanism might be used for coming up with a cigarette package-sized dialysis machine that you can hang in your pocket. Mm -hmm. They're often those really difficult technology challenges that we don't necessarily expect people to be able to meet, but want to drive people to start working towards them and making those strides if they can. And what are the government protection mechanisms or the off-ramps? You know, under regular FAR procurements, you can cancel for convenience. You can have people Mm -hmm. disbarred or, you know, in extreme cases, but there are ways out under FAR. Do you have those protections in these other ways of doing business? 
Absolutely. So cooperative agreements have a regulatory structure that allow for many of those same off-ramps that procurement contracts would. With our OTs, we very strategically negotiate in terms and conditions that give the government the ability to leave at various points, but also in many ways leave the performer the opportunity to leave as well, especially in those scenarios where there might be some level of cost sharing or resource sharing involved. Obviously, there are certain laws. We're still the government. We still have appropriated funds that we're using. So we need to have some of those basic off ramps that allow us to do that. But we also will have the opportunity to leave if it looks like the investment is not leaning towards the solution or a solution that's going to happen in the near term. We also, with our OTs, use a payment mechanism called payable milestones that allow us to tie payment to performance, and it gives us nice go and no-go points throughout the program and tracks progress to see whether or not this is something that's actually going to work or it's going to be something maybe the question's just too hard and the technology's not ready yet. It's nobody's fault. And many of our performers may be commercial companies who may not see a commercial avenue for this and therefore are not interested in just the government space. There's a wide variety of reasons why people may walk away. But our OTs are specifically negotiated to make sure that we have those off-ramps if we need them. And finally, what are some of the human capital challenges you have for the acquisition and contracts office there? Because the average 1102 trained in the FAR over 20 years may not be the right cat to kind of pick up this type of uh, approach, or are they? Absolutely. Uh, well, I mean, it's not even necessarily anyone's fault. It's that the training that people have to go into the fire-based world is different than the kind of focus that you would have, you know, using an OT. One of the things we are going to do, much like DARPA has done, is focus on higher graded folks. Folks more at the 14, 15 level who have a lot of experience in doing acquisitions already, and understand the business background of doing an acquisition because that'll help them negotiate. OTs fortunately have become much more mainstream in many organizations, not only DOD, but uh, 11 other agencies have OT authority of some variety. So that has helped a lot with getting the word out there and getting a lot of the training out there and letting people understand how OTs work. So we're finding that that's helped quite a lot, but we're gonna do a lot of mentoring as well, internally, bring people in at a lower level who we can grow and develop that mindset. And fortunately, having been an ex-professor of OTs at DAU, I uh, have a lot of background in this. And so we, ha we definitely have a plan. So the professorial role doesn't end because you are now running a contracts office. It never ends. <laughs> <laughs> Diane Sidebottom is Director of the Office of Acquisition and Contracts at the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, ARPA-H. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Acquire the Federal Drive on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, does the Pentagon skip too many of its own congressional reporting duties? But first... Contractors worry first about getting the contract, and second, can they fulfill it? This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. People running federal contractors have to forecast their annual business, no less than any other CEO, 
What makes the federal market unique is that the specific size is known year after year. IT services company Uninet and the law firm Cone Resnick asked contractors about their biggest challenges. Joining me with what they are, Uninet Vice President Kim Koster. Ms. Koster, good to have you with us. Uh, good to be here, Tom. Thank you very much. This is something you've done for several years now, is to kind of take the pulse of the contractor industry. Absolutely. Christine Williamson uh, from Cone Resnick and I started doing this in 2017. That would have been our maiden voyage into uh, into the gauge. And aside from whether people, you know, are optimistic or not optimistic, they have specific challenges that turn up in the survey. And given the uncertain appropriations situation, which is somewhat separate from the spending situation, because even if there's no appropriations and they go to a CR, they're spending. What are contractors worried about going into 23, the end of 23 and going into 24? Well, we continue to have contractors worried about recruiting and retention. That's been going on now for several years. But the biggest project management challenge that we've seen out in the marketplace is really forecasting resources. So to me, that becomes really the biggest challenge that our contractors are having. What is it they're trying to forecast? They're trying to really see when they need those resources, You know, when those resources need to start work, what skill set those resources need to be, and making sure that HR and the folks that are, are uh, recruiting uh, have the ability to place those people on those projects so that those projects become on time and on budget. Right. So the talent acquisition problem becomes really, that's the resource that they're worried about. Correct. That's correct. I mean, if you're a hardware reseller, then you just get the hardware you need as you need it and you order it and resell it. But in the case of putting people on a job, that's a little subtler of a problem, isn't it? It is. And you know, Tom, it really all starts back with pipeline forecasting. We did a deep dive this year on on forecasting, and we did it in eight different areas. And one of the most interesting things that came out of this was that pipeline forecasting was very important, yet it didn't have the accuracy of all the other forecasts. And that pipeline forecast is telling us what resources we're going to need in the future, what projects we're going to get. So as a growth engine, the pipeline is tremendously important, and it really shows the trajectory overall of your business. Right. You even have a formula for it, a measure, a metric you've devised, probability of wins times the probability of actually going ahead with it mm-hmm. equals the probability of award. So you have to know what you're going to win, and that begins with what should I bid on. So tell us more about that formula. If you're looking at what you're going to bid on, you're going to be able to see, um, hey, what are my differentiators? What makes me better than company A, B, or C? So what is the probability that I'm going to get that contract, uh, that I'm going to win that bid? And then the probability of, of go is whether or not the federal government is actually going to fund it. So when I put those two together, I'm able to get a probability of award. And then that's going to provide a factor for me to do all of my revenue forecasting out in the future. Well, the probability of win presumes that there is a totally objective process on the part of the government that you can predict that if A, B, and C happens because we're better than them on those things, boom, we'll get it. But it doesn't work out that way sometimes. It doesn't. But that is your best guess internally. So it's it's your people really taking an honest look at where your company is compared to your competitors. And I think that's really important that people really do look inward uh, to their own capabilities and their abilities to get those resources and and understand what's out there. Right. In other words, you can get 
much closer to the to the hole with your golf ball from the tee if you do a little bit of analytics of yourself. You're not going to get a hole in one, but you can come a lot closer to a decent putt chance. That's correct. We're speaking with Kim Coster. She's a vice president at Uninet. The implication is that maybe companies don't do this as systematically as they should. Do you have any recommendations on how do you systematically look at your strengths and your opportunities? What is it called? SWOT type of analysis, I think, is kind of what we're talking about here that the contractors could use to get better at it. One thing that we did note in the survey was that the capture process, a lot of the smaller companies didn't really have a capture process. And I think that as a part of that process, uh, the pursuit process, that people should look objectively at the competition. So I think, honestly, it just becomes a part of that um, that overall pursuit uh, discipline that should be going on before we actually even accept that opportunity uh, into our system. And there's kind of a timing question here, too, because if you do win and then you need to start executing on something that has been funded and you knew what your human resource requirements were, then you have to get that requirement filled. And that gets back to the difficulty of hiring, onboarding, maybe initially finding the right people, except by maybe poaching them from the people that didn't win. Right. And I think that's that's one of the important things about really being able to hone in on that forecast. And that probability of award may change over time. As we get nearer to award, you know, you may have all indications that you're going to get that contract. Um, and you have a little higher probability to let your HR team know to go off and hire the skills that you need or the people that you need. And do you find that, uh, again, the survey probably gives you some indication of who's answering? Are the large firms necessarily better at this than the smaller contractors? I'll tell you, definitely the um, the uh, uh, larger firms are better. They're going to have a more disciplined process up front. They're going to have a, a capture process. And so they're going to be much better at it. In fact, sometimes the big ones will just acquire who they think will give them that advantage. That, and... that's, a, that's a possibility, too. We did see that there is quite a bit of, of M&A opportunity uh, and action going on out there this, this year. Are there any exigent circumstances right now post-pandemic and given the weird political situation the country is in and so on that over the seven years you've been doing the survey have emerged? What's what's new maybe looking ahead into 24 that you might not have seen before? Well, one thing that started in 2022 was we really saw a resurgence of taking uh, DCAA looking at business systems. So there's six business systems um, and they really came in and started taking a hard look at that. In fact, uh, Director Dilley, uh, inside the report to Congress, mentions that 288 of those business systems audits were completed in 2022. So I look for more of those. We also started to see a trend towards more accounting system audits in solicitations. So, you know, have you do you have an approved accounting system? Um, that's becoming more and more criteria for winning new business. And we're speaking about the Defense Contract Audit Agency. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much a f sort of a side factor in here that can blow in at any time then, can it? Yes. And so I think that's been a, a really big trend. We've seen a lot of people now focusing on other areas of business like earned value, purchasing, estimating. But still, the accounting audit is definitely uh, still the biggest one to, to be concerned about and the most significant for getting points on a solicitation. And what about uh, Labor Department and White House requirements? I'm thinking of reporting and information data gathering by the Office of Federal Contractor Compliance Programs at the uh, Labor Department, climate reporting requirements, 
they keep getting layered on. Do you think that's an emerging trend that makes people say, well, why should I bother with federal business? Well, the one thing the federal business does is it provides a very stable environment. And Christine and I were talking the other day, and we said the one thing that this report does is there are very complex issues within this federal, this government contracting space. Um, But the nice thing about it is if you look year over year, it stays pretty stable. And so that should give people confidence in coming into this market. And there's great people, um, you know, the Cone Resnicks of the world, the Uninets of the world that can help you uh, with that with that journey. So I think that no matter what is actually happening out there, that the GovCon market is still a very attractive market. It's like a trout pond that someone has thrown a whole bushel basket times 10 of trout in. You know there's fish in there. You just got to get your hook down there. That's correct. And, you know, the one thing about it, is it's not just one vertical. You know, there's multiple different kinds of things going on in the federal government contracting world all the time. And so whatever your service or your product is, you know, there's likely a a space for you in this business, in this market. Kim Coster is vice president at Uninet. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. I really enjoyed it. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more of the survey results at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, does the Pentagon skip too many of its congressional reporting duties? This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Defense Department is under statutory obligation to deliver a thousand or so reports to Congress each year. One analysis says the department consistently fails at that task and that Congress doesn't get the information it needs for proper oversight of military affairs. Brennan Center Counsel Catherine Jan Ebright joins me now with more. Ms. Ebright, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me on, Tom. And you took a look at the situation, some FOIA documents we'll get into, but first of all, just outline the issue. A thousand, is that about the right number? And if that's the case, how many do they actually send over to the Hill every year? The reporting requirements for the Department of Defense established in each annual National Defense Authorization Act now stands at a very high, as as you suggested, a thousand plus reports on an annual basis. That's actually a very large increase relative to about a decade, decade and a half ago, when that number would have been in the hundreds, but now we're sort of in the mid thousands. And while advocates have identified substantial shortfalls, as well as, you know, congressional overseers have identified substantial shortfalls in the Department of Defense's reporting compliance, the exact quantity of the under compliance is yet unknown, at least as a matter of public record. That's something that the Brennan Center is trying to assess. We're trying to get data from the Department of Defense and have filed a separate FOIA request that will be able to quantify not only what that shortfall looks like, but also whether there are specific subject areas or Department of Defense component parts that are especially bad with respect to report compliance. I'm I'm happy to talk, too, about why we can say with certainty, though, that there's that undercompliance. Well, yeah, let's go there first, then. Why can you tell with certainty there's undercompliance? So we know with certainty that there is undercompliance because some of the Department of Defense's reporting requirements explicitly say that the reports not only must be submitted to Congress, but also must be publicly posted. And so you have organizations like the Center for Civilians in Conflict who track, for instance, 
civilian harm. And on an annual basis are combing through the NDAA and trying to find, okay, what are these public reporting provisions? And then tracking whether those reports are actually extant. And oftentimes they are not. Uh, you also look from a year-to-year -year basis on what the lawmakers are writing or proposing for various defense bills. And you will see on a regular basis proposals, sometimes they do make it into the final text, that say we want to withhold a percentage of the Department of Defense's budget for this year until it submits this report, that report, the other report from sometimes as far back as five years ago. And so you have these persistent asks from the lawmakers. You also, of course, have things coming up in congressional testimony, in private conversations with congressional overseers in which they're identifying not only the number of reports, but specific, very important reports that they've been asking for and haven't received. Yeah, that was my question. It's noticed on Capitol Hill that they're not received. Do you think the members notice it or is it pretty much staff that is the recipient as a practical matter for these reports? So the reports will typically go to the committee staffers and then the committee staffers, if they know that there's a member who's particularly interested in an area, maybe that member sponsored the requirement for the report, they can send that report along or they can summarize the report. So that's sort of the chain of it. But certainly there are reports of high salience that the lawmakers will be looking out for. And they will mention, they will ask, for instance, Department of Defense officials, why have we not received this report when we asked for it by law, however many years ago? And the follow-on question then is, do we know, in, in your experience dealing with members of Congress, do they actually read them and make decisions and funding priorities and hearing questions based on them, or do they just want to make sure they get it and, and it may sit on the shelf? Because I think that's what happens to a lot of reports that go to Congress. Yeah. So again, for some reports, I think we can say with certainty that the lawmakers are looking out for them, are engaging with them when they receive them, and certainly staffers are. So whether the lawmakers themselves are going into a skiff and reading a report or are looking for a publicly available report, or whether they're relying on some really bright 33-year-old to read it, summarize it, tell them the headline points, it's still the information being conveyed to Congress and Congress needs that to be informed in its legislative process. There are, though, and, and you do raise the point, and it's a good one, a lot of reports where the Department of Defense, as well as the lawmakers and their staffers, get the sense it's submitted and it just sits on a shelf. And I don't want to say that this problem is 100% the Department of Defense's fault. You see that explosion in reporting requirements that the Department of Defense has. And I think Congress needs to be a little bit more discerning in what it's actually asking for. Sure. We're speaking with Catherine Jan Ebright. She is counsel at the Brennan Center. And you FOIA'd and received a report that the Pentagon itself prepared. This was a few years ago on how they could improve their own reporting process Give us the highlights of what that said. You know, it's a 26-page single-spaced report, but in it, and having scanned it, the Defense Department does lay a lot of the blame on Congress, the fact they thought to have to submit in paper instead of electronically. And so whatever happened to that report, and is anyone acting on it? The report on reports. Let's pull back a moment and talk about why the Department of Defense produced this report on reports extremely bureaucratic. It's because Congress had identified all of these shortfalls in reporting and said, hey, Department of Defense, what's up? Why is this so bad? And what are you going to do to fix it? 
And so in response to that legal requirement from Congress, come up with a plan to fix your reporting, what the department does is it submits this report on report, which lays virtually every single reform necessary at Congress's feet. So you mentioned, for instance, the Department of Defense claiming, alleging that Congress has enacted legislation that requires hard copies of reports. And if you look at the law that they're citing, which is Section 480 of Title 10 of the U.S. Code, if any of our listeners are going to look it up, that section actually requires the Department of Defense to submit reports electronically, not in hard copy. Um, That's very plain from the face of the text. Moreover, for the past two decades, going back as far as 2003, when enacting reporting requirements, often Congress will specify and the Department of Defense shall submit this in electronic form in accordance with Section 480. And so it's completely unambiguous. Yet the Department of Defense has said, our excuse is you're asking for it in paper copy, not in electronic medium. And and that's just untrue. Other things that they say slow their report compliance is they claim that it takes as long as three months to identify all of the reporting requirements within each big defense bill. And then they say it takes several months on top of that to assign out those reporting requirements within the Department of Defense. And that's similarly preposterous. (laughs) You know, just speaking frankly, the Brennan Center has had junior staffers comb through those same documents and identify reporting requirements. And it can be done in a week, two weeks, if you really prioritize it. So it's a matter of prioritizing complying with the law. um, And that's simply not been done when it comes to providing critical information to the Hill. All right. And I suppose maybe the Hill could publish the NDAA in searchable PDF. That would be progress, I think, for just about anyone who has waded into this document, as I have. Well, given all this, they're at loggerheads then, basically. And there's sort of passive resistance on the part of the Pentagon, ever-increasing demands on the part of Congress. Is there a practical way out of this? So I think the way out of this is for Congress to play a little bit of hardball, which is to say that this is a matter of failing to prioritize complying with reporting requirements. And we can't pretend that the Department of Defense doesn't have the resources to comply with those requirements when it has over $800 billion in its budget, which, by the way, Congress's budget is 1% of the Department of Defense's budget. So for DOD to say Congress needs to do this, that, and the other thing to allow us to fulfill our requirements, our our legal obligations, it's a little bit questionable. But I think by playing hardball, what I mean is Congress has historically and increasingly is taking to mechanisms that say you can only use 50% of your budget for travel. You can only use 75% of your operations and maintenance budget until you submit this critical report. And so I think that does two things. One, it uses Congress's power of the purse to ensure that it's getting the information that it needs to govern. And two, it is implicitly saying these are really critical reports and we're going to attach our power of the purse, our appropriations power to obtaining compliance, obtaining that information. Well, that would certainly get their attention. Catherine Jan Ebright is counsel for the Brennan Center. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. 
federal agencies are grappling with a rising tide of cyber supply chain threats and requirements. To help out, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has set up a cyber supply chain risk management office. For our Cyber Leaders Exchange this year, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with the program lead for CSCRIM at CISA, Sean Labonovitz. We are just coming up on one year of really thinking and reshaping how CISA is helping agencies and, you know, just the nation in general respond to the threats associated with supply chain. You know, having the opportunity to come over and support this agency has been such a thrill for me. Um, CISA is such a unique agency and we're in a unique position to really help lead the charge in, in really thinking differently about cyber supply chain risk management. You know, we've evolved from this idea of there's this balloon in the sky that we're grabbing, but now that we've got that balloon, what do we do with it? How do we really help agencies operationalize it? So we've been, you know, laying some really good building blocks and really trying to get the word out. So I really do appreciate opportunities like this to talk about our work, to talk about how we're thinking about moving forward in this space and just how we're helping the nation move forward. What are your goals with the CSCRIM office at CISA? And, and you know, what does the CSCRIM program office look like? You know, how many folks do you have working for you? What, what's kind of the contours of this office? So, you know, my vision really is to continue to advocate and spread the message that this has to be a top priority in all agencies at all times. And I really want to help agencies figure out sort of the one, two, three, fourths of supply chain risk management implementations. What does that look like, right? Who do I need to talk to? How do I make it work? And how am I proving success? And what that's going to look like for CISA is really answering some tough questions that my leadership is, is really challenging me to think about. How do we strategically put that message out? What are some of the things that we must do internally as CISA that would best position us to help other agencies? So I'm spending a lot of time with my team really thinking about what does the inside of CISA look like? Who's working on supply chain and how do we come together? You know, a really big um, part of what we think about is NRMC, right? How does a National Risk Management Center fit into the work that I'm doing? How does that fit into vulnerability management when we're thinking about critical software and SBOM? So we're having a lot of internal conversations to really sync better and make ourselves stronger as we continue to sort of shine that light outwards to industry, to the ICT community through NRMC, to our vendors that are working really closely right now on some software projects with VM, and to my team and agencies really focusing on the federal civilian executive branch to really help them figure this thing out. And so when it comes to my team, we, we're still growing and we're building, right? So as we continue to develop our own strategic plan and strategy, we're able to sort of have those conversations with our leadership team to to build out. But structurally right now, there are three very important areas of my PMO 
I have a strategy and governance group that really is helping to shape and think about what I just talked about, Justin. It also is developing metrics and KPIs, right? Um, we can't just do work to be doing work. We need to show value and success. Um, we've got our Sigma team that is really the bulk and the heart of our fast work, the Federal Acquisition Security Council, which has been codified into law for another 10 years. So we've got to think holistically, how are we bringing other parts and members together to really think about removal and exclusion orders? And the last piece is my storm team, which really is my outward facing team that is working boots to ground with agencies to develop best practice guides to talk about training. So we kind of look at ourselves as this, this awesome sort of triad that's bringing the best and brightest in this space to really, again, focus internally on CISA, but to shine that externally and help by other agencies. Wow, yeah, it sounds like there's been a lot of work in just a year to really put some structure behind this CSCRIM effort and, of course, program management office. Maybe let's start with what that strategy and governance group might be working on around metrics and KPIs, because I wanted to ask you about best practices for federal agencies, and I'm guessing there's some interplay there. So what does success look like? How do you show value through a, a CSCRIM program in the federal government? Absolutely. So one of the things that we are working on in FY24 is developing a maturity model. So what we want to do is actually put some, some framing, some levels around different maturations in supply chain, right? So that way we can go in and say, if an agency is at a zero, do we want to get them to a one or a two based on their mission and function area? And in order to get to level two, we want to put together these four or five things. And so if we can actually show that we've helped agencies accomplish putting governance documents in place, having a communications plan, right? If the next solo wind happens, I always ask agencies, do you know who to talk to in your agency, much less outside? So really putting some structure around getting some champions internally, getting leadership on board. There, there's a different conversation that we need to have with our leadership about supply chain and being able to articulate not only the fact that we need to do it, but what value will it bring to the agencies? What goals am I helping to accomplish by actually doing this work? And so putting a little bit of framing and structure around that is important for us as we move forward. Um, looking at some key things, right? So if I am continuing to see risk and um, threats happening in the telecom space, then maybe I need to look at those telecom providers. Maybe I'll need to look at those contracts and see how they're structured. So just having more awareness, situational awareness about what's going on in the threat landscape and being able to respond to that and having some, some documentation, some metrics that says, Here's what's happened, but here's how we're mitigating that. Sean Labonovitz, the program lead for cyber supply chain risk management at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. You can hear more of the interview on demand by registering for the Cyber Leaders Exchange 2023 at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 